Hello and welcome to You're On Mute, the On Mute Series 2, a multi-award nominated podcast brought to you by BBI. I'm your host, Lord Michael Hastings, and sharing some good news, I'm pleased to announce we now have a charity, the Black British Initiative. Over the next 25 weeks, myself and Eunice Olamidi and my fellow presenters will be interviewing an incredible lineup of leaders, icons, and changemakers. Lifting the mute button, we learn about their life's journey, how they got their big break, and ascertain how they balance the importance of commercial performance versus societal impact. Now, the killing of George Floyd, Chris Caber, and similar instances has highlighted how racial disparity has disproportionately affected the globe's black communities. One of the greatest challenges facing black entrepreneurs is a lack of access to funding capital, limited aspirations, stunting growth, slowing innovation, and preventing the deep reservoirs of black entrepreneurial talent from being realized, counterproductive, of course, for society at large. And as we all know, with great power comes huge responsibility. So this series looks at how those in positions of influence can use their status as a force for good, helping to level the playing field to enable a full contribution from every sector of society. Our time together is broken into three sections, each one punctuated by the guests' favorite piece of music, singling different stages of their life. And today we're joined by Tommy Lube, CBE, businessman, entrepreneur, philanthropist, awarded honorary doctorate by the University of Wolverhampton, chair and founder of the African Gifted Foundation, chair of ADA, the National College for Digital Skills, former non-executive director at the BBC, fellow at St. Anne's and Jesus College, Oxford, previously ranked first on the UK's list of 100 most powerful people with African or Caribbean heritage, currently CEO and founder of Crossword Cybersecurity, in addition to being chair of the UK's Rugby Football Union. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much. So let's start with your first piece of music. Tell us a little bit about what turns you on. Ain't No Stopping Us Now. Ain't No Stopping Us Now from Fadden and Whitehead. Um, and when I was at university, I was at university in Nigeria uh, in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, and this was sort of an anthem, really. This was uh, a song that used to get the parties going. And for me, I remember in my business career, there were a couple of points where I just had some sort of breakthrough. And then I went back to this piece of music and blasted it out and marched around the house thinking there really is no stopping me <laughs> now. So mm. uh, I really enjoy it. It's it's kind of a it's a it's a forward looking, you know, don't worry about the naysayers, we're going to drive forwards. Uh, and sometimes I get into that mode and this piece of music uh, really reflects that. And it's very much the theme of your life, isn't it? That you've, you're, you're going to be stopped. There's still a lot to be done, a lot to be done. Um, being chair of the Rugby Football Union, being the first black chair of any national sports organization is an extraordinary achievement. It's a real big one to win, but it's a lot of responsibility. But just take us back a little bit to the genesis of your life. Start with mum and dad. Yeah, so uh, mum and dad, I was born in, uh, in London. Uh, my dad was Nigerian, he's passed away now. My mum is English, uh, she's still with us. Uh, I grew up in partly in West London. Uh, I spent the first, mo most of the first year of my life in foster care. 
um, and then came back to the family. Uh, I went to Uganda in East Africa when I was about six or seven years old, I think, with my dad, who was posted out there to help set up Uganda television, help establish it. Uh, and I was there when Idi Amin took over and we ended up having to escape from East Africa, from Uganda, to get back to the UK under quite difficult circumstances. Um, then more time in London. And then when I was in my mid-teens, about 14, uh, my dad had returned to Nigeria uh, and took me over there. So uh, I went over to Nigeria when I was about 14, finished secondary school over there, went to university over there, and then came back to England when I was about 21. So just unpick a little bit for us this year in foster care. Why did that happen and what do you remember? Uh, I was I was tiny, so I don't personally remember anything. Um, it happened because it was just a very difficult time for a black man and a white woman, you know, to get together and have a child in the very early 60s. Uh, and there were all sorts of reasons why uh, it just it just didn't work for me to uh, to be around at that time. And therefore, uh, I was uh, I was in foster care. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting. I was chatting to someone just a couple of days ago who said, uh, who, who themselves was a care leaver. And then they said, when I explained that, they said, oh, so you're a care leaver. And I, I, it was a phrase I've never used about myself mm. um, because I don't sort of identify myself. I had never identified myself in, in that way, but th this particular woman was saying well you know given the amount of time you were in you were in care and then came out of care that defines you as a care leaver so I thought it was that was kind of a new a new aspect of my identity that uh, I hadn't really thought about even though I do think about it from time to time and I wonder in what ways without me really knowing it's it's influenced who I am. Did it make you feel one way or the other once you heard that phrase and you thought about it? Um, I think in the past, what I've felt when I've reflected on this from time to time is whether I do some of the things that I do in order to uh, be accepted in the family, whatever that family oh. is. Um, uh, now, given that I was so young i can't consciously have had any sense of not being uh, accepted but i wonder whether the the story of it uh, has has kind of developed in my mind that uh, in some way i have to make a contribution in order to be uh, part of the family as it were one of the big contributions you make very substantially is the work that you do with the african gifted foundation yes absolutely and that's very important to me um you know, I started that whole foundation about 10 or 11 years ago, and it had been in the planning before that, but it started to become something 10 or 11 years ago. And then about five years ago, it turned into a school that we set up in Ghana called the African Science Academy for young women from across Africa to come together into our school on full scholarships, study science and technology, and then go off to universities all over the world. And we've had over 100 young women come through the school so far, and we're scaling it up now. Uh, we're aiming to have 1,000 young women go through the school 
uh, by the end of this decade. Uh, and yeah, it's having a profound impact on their lives and therefore the communities around them and their countries more broadly. So that's probably the thing that I've done that I am most proud of uh, across my both career and philanthropic uh, work. You're really seeing phenomenal scientifically minded young women right across the continent, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it, it's fascinating, you know, you see, uh, we, we get 20 times as many applications as we have places. Uh, you know, we have hundreds and hundreds of applications from incredibly talented young women uh, from all sorts of uh, you know, less privileged backgrounds across the continent. And it just reminds me, every time we have those applications come through and every time we select a group of young women to join the academy, just how much talent there is out there, how much exceptional talent, and how if we can unleash it in the right way, it can have a just absolutely profound impact uh, on not just on themselves and their own careers, but on the continent really, and, and more widely. And also the perception of young black women and young African women um, mm. as, as being exceptionally academically gifted in science and maths and uh, and so forth. I mean, our, our, our girls, they do A-levels in maths, further maths, physics in under a year from a standing start. And almost all of them, in fact, I think all of them pass, almost all of them get A-stars, A's or B's, and almost all of them have then gone on to get fully funded scholarships around the world. So it sort of changes the perception of what people think about when they think of young African women and science and technology. Wow, you're doing remarkable work. We're talking about creative talent. You also had your own experience in the theatre, didn't you, while you were at school? <laughs> I do, I, <laughs> I'm not sure I would call it creative talent. I, I was just in, I was in a school play. I played the role of young Johnny Jones. <laughs> it was quite a while ago. Um, so yeah, that's as, that's as far as I got. Actually, my daughter, Rihanna, has become a playwright. Uh, so I'm now claiming her immense talent based on my momentary <laughs> fleeting moment of glory in the school play. <laughs> But you were you had to um, you had to put on a, a different kind of look, didn't you? Oh, in in uh, school. Well, so this was when was it? Early seventies, mm. and um, they, for whatever reason, uh, the uh, the makeup person or whoever was producing it thought that it would be uh, terribly funny if I was to be blacked up for my role as Johnny Jones, mm. uh, and so that's what they did. Um, I actually, I was in tears um, because it was just so unpleasant and embarrassing and, uh, and people around me were laughing as the paint was going on. Um, now, because I was crying, uh, the, um, the, the paint was all dripping down the side of my face. <laughs> so they realized that they couldn't actually have me go on with this paint because it wasn't going to work. So then they wiped it all off again. Um, uh, and uh, and so I went on and and I looked particularly 
uh, pale and a bit washed out because I didn't have any of the the makeup on under under the lights. And that was the day. I think that may have been the opening night of the the play was on for three nights or whatever. This is just a school play, um, but it was it happened to be the night when my mum and I think one or two of my brothers and sisters were going to be in the audience as well. And that that sort of again that made made it feel even more embarrassing if that was possible that I was going to appear on stage uh, in in that way I remember my mum saying I looked quite washed out um, mm. you know, when I came on stage and I didn't at the time I don't think explain uh, explain the reason why but uh, that's that's mm. the 70s for you it was quite a time painful very painful but you also had a very painful experience in Uganda this is during the Idi Amin period you, you had an Asian friend and you went to visit and what happened? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, um, they had recently, the, the Idi Amin had recently said that all, you know, he, he wanted all Asians out of the country, essentially. And there was uh, yeah, an incredible rush for, to the airport um, uh, for many Asian families. And it just so happened that next door to where I lived with my dad, uh, there was a young Asian lad who um, who we used to play with. Myself and a Ugandan friend would often play with him. So we popped round to his house, and to our surprise, the house was completely empty. There was just nobody yeah. there, but the door was open. We we walked in and we walked around, and we, being ten year old boys, we thought this is very strange. And there's you know everything's here, but there are just no people. Uh, and we got bored, sort of looking for him. So we came out the front of the house, and as we stepped out of the front of the house. There are a row of soldiers there, fully armed, uh, with instructions to shoot looters on sight. Um, and they they weren't sure whether we were looters or not. Uh, some thought we were, some thought we weren't. So they tied us up, uh, put yeah. us on the ground and stood over us um, and went off to find a commanding officer to decide whether we were to be dispatched uh, on site or, or not. Fortunately, my dad was driving back from work at about that time. And he, he said to me much later that he remembers driving past, looking over and seeing these soldiers standing around some looters with their guns pointed, thinking, I better stay out of this. And then thinking, hold on, I recognize one of those looters. <laughs> that was you. <laughs> that was me. So he came rushing over and uh, you know, all sorts of conversations ensued. Uh, until they untied us and, and, and let us stand up. My friend, who was a Ugandan lad, whose dad obviously wasn't there, he realised that even if I was going to get off uh, with because my dad was there and because I looked not Ugandan anyway, a bit foreign, and so maybe the army were going to let me off, he didn't know what was going to happen to him. So all of a sudden, he just sprinted for the bush. He just started mm. running. Um, and one of the soldiers fired his machine gun at him. He actually fired, but I could see from the distance, he fired over his head. He, he could have hit him. It wasn't, you know, the guy was only sort of 20 yards ahead. He could have hit him easily, but he didn't. He fired over his head and my friend reached the bush and just disappeared. I never saw him again. He never came back to his house. He obviously just went, uh, you know, just went somewhere else. And I think it was partly after that and a few other incidents that my dad decided that we were going to have to uh, surreptitiously get out of the country and uh, and make our way back to the UK, which we did one late one night, drove off into the night and never returned. 
You literally drove across the border, did you? Yeah, yeah, we drove across the border. We drove into uh, into Kenya and uh, got a flight out of uh, out of Nairobi back to the UK. Left everything, left it all behind. We just just passports and off we went, kind of thing. So really, you came to the UK with nothing. Well, except that I had family here, so you know, uh, so it wasn't. It wasn't quite like that. It wasn't like the experience of uh, of some people, but it was definitely, uh, you know, when I hear about some of the stories uh, that people have been through or are going through at the moment, um, you know, I can resonate with, with some of that uh, because of that experience many years ago. And you, your education is very interesting, Tom, because you, you, you studied in an African university and you studied in the UK. Yes, yes, I did uh, uh, physics at the University of Benin in uh, in Nigeria, uh, and then I did a, uh, a master's degree, an MBA, specialising in finance at City University of London. So I, I've got experience of both uh, both educational systems and environments, and you know it's it's been it's been fascinating, and I'm I'm pleased that I have had that experience. I wasn't pleased when I first went over to. Nigeria. Um, I, uh, I, I didn't want to be there at the start. Uh, my, my big sports were rugby and ice skating. Uh, and then all of a sudden, I found myself in Nigeria. Actually, when we were going, uh, I told my dad that ice skating was my main sport, one of my main sports here. Uh, and, and he said to me, ah, ice skating, yeah, very, very popular in Nigeria. <laughs> <laughs> so I was delighted to hear that, but uh, it turned out it wasn't exactly true. Of course not. No ice. No ice. <laughs> <laughs> so it took me a while to uh, to settle down. I, I tried to escape. I nearly nearly made it, but uh, got caught and got brought back. Uh, and then I sort of settled down and actually spent a very interesting six or seven years in Nigeria. Got to know. The country well, uh, you know, really learnt, understood the, that side of my culture and heritage, um, and uh, and enjoyed my time at university studying physics there. And did you find having a Nigerian degree was an issue when you came to the UK? Oh yes, yeah. Well, in a sense, yes, um, because it was a, uh, a an average degree from an unrecognized, you know, at a university that nobody here knew. Uh, so um, it, was, it was a difficult time to get started. But I also, as well as getting the degree, I also absorbed some of the Nigerian attitude of just being fairly unstoppable. So, you know, I came back to England, age 21, and thought there are thousands and thousands of companies here, so one's going to give me a job, even if I have to apply to thousands and thousands of them. It just it just didn't occur to me for a moment that 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 wouldn't happen. So it didn't really matter that my degree wasn't recognised. You know, I knew that I was smart and good at what I did and and so forth, and therefore I just kept battering away. Uh, until I got in the door somewhere. So interesting, Tom. Your your second piece of music, "Through the Wire" by Kanye West, kind of reflects what you've been describing: your determination to keep going through. Yes, and I think that may be what attracted me to the song. I mean, apart from the lyrics and uh, and the uh, 
the, the rhythm and so forth. Um, it, just the sort of spirit of we will just find a way through. Yeah, we, we will find a we will keep going and we will get these knockbacks and we'll we'll find a way through. Um, and certainly through my 20s, 30s, um, that was that was the mindset that I had. I I will just keep going and I will find a way through and I just won't won't be stopped. I won't go down. Um, if I do go down, I'm up again and I go again. Um, and I almost, I relish that, you know, I don't yeah. see it as, you know, if people say to me, oh, isn't that a pity that you've had to deal with this, that and the other. Uh, and I don't know why, but in my mind, it's sort of, that's the game. That's, that's the game yeah. I'm playing. Um, that's, that's why my story is exciting and successful because I dealt with that and I came through and I think through the wire uh, reflects uh, reflects that and, and so I listen to it you know, if I'm going even now if I'm going to a meeting or preparing for something tough uh, I'm probably going to put that on at some point to just get me ready for for what I'm going into. So you, and talking of going into your first one of your first jobs of going into was with British Airways Yes, yes, I um, yes, I went to British Airways mainly because they began with the letter B, uh, and I'd applied. <laughs> <laughs> I'd applied to pretty much every company that began with the letter A. I wanted to get into computing, and so yeah. I found a, a book called the Computer Users Yearbook. I applied to the every company that began with A, and they all said no. Uh, I started on the Bs and eventually got to British Airways and uh, and, and they said yes, uh, amazingly. Um, in fact, fairly recently, um, I found, I tracked down the woman who had given me the opportunity uh, yeah. and I, I found her uh, and told her what she had done for me and uh, uh, and interestingly she was she was very flattered that i had reached out to tell her this but she had no memory of me <laughs> she, she doesn't remember interviewing me or giving me the job um uh, but she was very flattered that i remembered that she was the person that just inched that door open enough to uh, to let me through well, at least you didn't have any negative memories. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, that was good. <laughs> you, you seemed to go on through a plethora of different organizations, didn't you? You went through banking and consulting, and eventually, yeah. where did you land? Yeah, yeah, eventually I started up. Uh, I, I, I mean, I think I was always going to be a startup person. When I was at university, I created a, a small business, uh, um, a, a a tailoring business you know we made trousers and sold them across the university and made money so I think there was always that entrepreneurial side but when I came back to the UK after I'd finished my degree in Nigeria I wanted to build up a network I wanted to get some money in the bank to give me some stability and I also think I wanted to both test whether I was good enough to work for these prestigious blue chip companies and in some way 
prove to myself that I was worthy of doing mm. that. So it mattered to me to get a job at PricewaterhouseCoopers and be mm. in a big four consulting firm. It mattered to me to be working at the London Stock Exchange. It mattered to me after 16 interviews to be offered a job by Goldman Sachs. All of those things in a sense mattered to me probably more than the job itself. There was something yeah. about getting into those roles uh, and sort of saying, actually, yes, I'm, I'm good enough to do that role. And they recognize that, uh, that when I got to Goldman's and had spent a couple of years there, I sort of thought, I don't really need to do this anymore. There are no other companies that it really matters to me uh, that they recognize who I am. So in a sense, I, I felt free then. I felt free to say, okay, yeah. now I can, I can just create my own companies. I think I'll do that instead. And that took me down the entrepreneurial route. And you had companies like Noddle and Garlic. Mm. I mean, was, that a, was that a food business? Yeah, um, so yeah, Garlic was an identity protection uh, uh, business. Um, uh, Noddle was a, um, a credit reference related business. We created that within Cool Credit. Um, uh, cross, crossword is a cybersecurity business. Um, I like the early stage of businesses. I like the challenge of starting with a blank sheet of paper and thinking, let's create a business. How do you create a business? What's the product? Who are the customers? Can I raise money? What am I going to call it? If I try to employ people, will they actually come and work for me as it progresses? Can I turn my shares into cash and make some money? All of that sort of exciting stage of creating something from nothing and seeing it come to life is what I find fascinating. And one of the things I realized in my entrepreneurial career is that it is simply a choice as to whether you're the sort of entrepreneur who creates one company and builds that company for the next 20 or 30 years, or whether you're the sort of entrepreneur who starts again with another blank sheet of paper and starts a new company. And I'm the sort of entrepreneur who loves starting new companies, who loves sitting there on my own with a blank sheet of paper. And then a year or two later, there's a company with people and investment and product and customers and so forth. That's what I find exciting. And you also learned through all of the experiences of working in companies and creating You've learned an awful lot about the qualities that you need, both as an entrepreneur and as an employee. How would you sum up the qualities that you feel are most important? For me, I think as, a, as an entrepreneur and uh, as an employee, the, the qualities that have been most important, I think, have been, sometimes I call it ability, failure, understanding failure, understanding that it is part of the journey. It's not actually something negative and problematic. You can't, in my experience, you can't get to success without passing through failure. Mm. And therefore, if you don't have the sort of relationship with failure that picks you up and allows you to go again, then what you're going to tend to do is to just hold yourself back a bit 
so that you don't really have to face that failure. You just dial it back a bit. Whereas I'm quite comfortable plowing into it completely, trying things, and if they work, then brilliant, and if they don't work, then I will try again and again and again. Um, so that's been really important to me. Now other people might call it persistence and, and so forth, but I think that in a way, if you just call it persistence, which is important in, in entrepreneurial and other business life, you're just missing the emotional impact of how you deal with and how you respond to failure, which I think is important. I mm. think um, ambition uh, is incredibly important, uh, but it has to be the right shape in the sense that you, you, I found that being able to divorce the route to my goal from the goal itself has been very important. Mm. I, I keep the goal in mind, but if this particular route isn't getting me there, I don't get stuck on it. I, I, will, I will shift and I'll try another route that will get me to that goal and I'll try another route. So being able to hold on to the ambition, but be flexible about the path has been very important to me. Um, mm. Storytelling, the ability to communicate, the ability to tell my stories in a compelling way that's engaging and get people to support the journey has been really important. And uh, I was once giving a talk at a school where they, uh, one of the students asked the question, what subject is most important to being an entrepreneur? Uh, and I said, drama, much to the delight of the drama teacher, because uh, the point I was making is that you are constantly acting as an entrepreneur, you are, you are trying to encourage your customers, your clients, your investors, your employees, everyone looks to you to perform, and therefore you have to know how to do it. Uh, and mm. finally, I've realized how important teamwork uh, is, that it is just impossible to achieve your goals on your own. You have to be part of a team you may be the leader of that team you may be a member of that team but there will always be teamwork and to be a good team player you have to be quite self-reflective and understand yourself and understand how you work uh, with other people wow that is hugely profound and immensely people will be so grateful for that incredible answer tom incredible answer so let's take you on to your third piece of music from Sammy Davis Jr. Do you remember it? Mr. Mr. Bojangles. Yes, yes. Yes, Mr. Bojangles. I think it defines who I am, really. Some years ago, I started a, uh, a blog, which I don't keep up to date now, but I did, uh, did used to write a lot over a 10-year period. And I, I needed a name for the blog, and I thought it needs to reflect who I am and my personality, and so I called it Mr. Bojangos. Mm. Um, and um, in one of the lines in Mr. Bojangos is um, where he says, talked of life, laughed. Uh, and, and that's sort of what I do. And that's what I do on, did on the blog. And that's what I do with, you know, I enjoy life. I laugh a lot. I, I find things randomly amusing. Uh, that nobody else does, or, or and my brother Roland does. So we sit there giggling, and my wife is looking at us saying, what's the matter with you two? <laughs> so so you know, we laugh a lot, 
but also I think about life, I talk of life, I'm, you know, I'm, I can be sad and happy sort of at the same time, um, you know, and, and Mr. Bojangos as a song uh, from Sammy Davis Jr. just, I feel, captures the essence of who I am. Someone, and someone being kind to say you've been, you're phenomenally hardworking, phenomenally innovative, but you've also been phenomenally lucky as well. At the same time, you've had a lot of opportunities. And as you look at the world uh, that you see for other black entrepreneurs who want to get into serious business making, what, what do you see as the obstacles that seem to stick in the way all the time? Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, people do point to obstacles around the ability to raise finance or um, you know, perhaps be taken you know, seriously in certain contexts or, or the network that you need to, to build up. And you know, I think these are all real things. Um, I think that I may have started in an era, you see, I'm always quite careful about how much useful advice I can give to today's entrepreneurs. In a sense, they can maybe pick some things from my experience that are useful and then ignore all the rest of them because my entrepreneurial journey has been over the last 30 years or so, 25, 30 years. And I think that I assumed obstacles. Uh, I, I started from the perspective um, that there would be difficulties and obstacles, really tough difficulties and obstacles. And therefore, right from the front, right from the start, I was ready for them. I was prepared for them. I, my, mentally, I was expecting them. So I didn't go into it all assuming a level playing field and then find myself surprised that the playing field wasn't level. I went into it knowing that the playing field wasn't level and knowing how how unlevel, if that's a word, it was. And therefore, I was like, OK, let's play. Let's play this game and see how we get on. Um, so, you know, I knew it would be difficult to raise money uh, as, a, as a black entrepreneur. And therefore, I thought about strategies for how I could overcome that. I knew it would be difficult. I knew I wouldn't have the natural network of someone who had been to Oxbridge or wherever and would start off with this massive network. Therefore, I was already thinking about, okay, how am I going to build my network to replicate that? I knew that there were certain areas where I might not be taken seriously right from the start. Therefore, I knew that the technique of credentializing was important. You know, as a, as a black person, if you go into a room, um, straight away there are assumptions made about you. Um, mm. and, uh, and so, you know, you can decide whether you address those assumptions right up front um, or whether you let the person discover who you are over a period of time. Um, I tend to address them right up front so that the person knows who I am. And you could argue, well, why should they make those assumptions about you? Uh, which is true, but 
I don't waste time. I just let them know who I am straight away so that we just get over that so that we can get on and get down to business, uh, as it were. Is there a critical descriptor you always use? Uh, not, not the same one. It, it very much depends on the, uh, uh, on the context. I mean, obviously, if I'm in the sports world or if I'm the government, uh, in, the, in the government world at the moment or whatever, I'm probably going to be saying, hello, I'm Tom, I'm chair of the RFU and I do a few other things. Um, mm. If I'm in certain parts of the business world, I'm probably saying, I'm Tom, I'm on the board of WPP, the FTSE 100 company that's the world's largest advertising agency. And by the way, I do some other things. If I'm in the technology world, uh, I'm the person who set up multiple technology companies. If I'm in the education world, uh, I'm the founder of um, Hammersmith Academy, the former chair of Ada College, the chair of the Africa Science Academy. So I will make sure upfront that the person that I'm talking to knows who I am and knows how I want to be seen in that particular mm. conversation, rather than saying, well, they should give me the benefit of the doubt and try and figure out who I am. Yeah, maybe they should, but they won't. So let me help them out here. This is who I am. Okay, are we going to have a sensible conversation? And it obviously works. Obviously, way <laughs> not always, but mostly. <laughs> and just thinking a little bit about your your great love for Africa, for the continent, for its people, for the girls you talked about who are in your your academy, in the college. And many people would sit would still be questioning whether Africa is the place to pitch your tent if you want to be an investor and a business leader. What do you say to them? I think that you know there are so many places to invest, but yeah, Africa over over the next period, it will it will what what happens there, and you know will be so impactful across the world as a whole. I mean, you look at a country like Nigeria, two hundred million people today. Um, you know, estimated to be perhaps 400 million by the turn of the, by, you know, 2050 or something like that, you know, just phenomenal numbers of people and incredibly smart, bright, ambitious, uh, alert. Um, if, if as an investor, um, you can't make money in that environment, <laughs> what, what are you doing? Now, as it happens, I focus my interest in Africa is philanthropic and education. You know, I, I don't particularly do business in Africa. I'm not an investor, um, but uh, I've seen people do amazing things. And there are often, um, you know, sometimes you'll find that people, entrepreneurs will, will have, will do breakthrough things in Africa um, and sort of skip generations of technology. There's some fascinating things going on in artificial intelligence. There are some fascinating things going on in digital money. There are huge healthcare opportunities. Um, there are just so many opportunities across the continent for the right investor. What you have to do though, is you, you have to really engage. You have to really get involved in the countries, understand the culture and the dynamics. If you try and do it arm's length from outside, then you risk losing all your money. So don't do that. <laughs> mm, hard lessons 
learned and understood well. I mean, you're very much, you're very, very much a, a role model for anyone who wants to begin small from a complex background, tough circumstances. Do you think of yourself as a role model, as an icon of the business world, of the philanthropic world, of the hard experience world? <laughs> I, I think of myself as um, available in the sense that if there are aspects of my journey and story that other people find useful to take and mold and do something with, then they are very welcome. Uh, and therefore, I'm very comfortable being visible and telling my story so that people can take what they want. Um, I don't think of myself uh, at all as an icon in that sort of look at me, great business person, blah, blah, that kind of sense. Um, but I also uh, don't think, oh, you know, humble little me, I shouldn't tell people about my story because it's not worthwhile. I'm just quite happy to say, okay, this is what I did and this is how I did it and these things worked well and these things didn't. In this sort of buffet of life, is there anything you'd like to browse and pick up and take that might help you uh, on, on your, your way? Uh, and that's perfectly, that's perfectly fine. But in any case, you know, my, um, uh, yeah, at home, uh, as, as often for people, I'm, I'm, I'm not a role model in my own, uh, in my own house. When, uh, when I was told uh, that I was going to be you know, designated the, the most influential black person in, in the UK, I, I came home and said to my wife, do you know I'm the most influential black person in the UK? Uh, and she said, you? <laughs> How can that be possible? You're not even the most influential black person in this house. So I sort of know my, know my place in the pecking order and don't get too carried away uh, about that. But if it's useful for people to pick any aspect of what I've done uh, and use it for their own purposes, then I'm delighted if they do. Just a, just a word or two as we come to the end of this, this conversation about racism in sport. You're the head of uh, phenomenal sport, as in RFU. And as you look out on the various images of racist behavior, chanting, abuse that we've seen in sport, what, do you have a particular reflection on all of that from cricket right the way through the football, even aspects of rugby or otherwise? I think sport has such an important role in in people's lives. I mean, it's both a it's both a reflection of broader society uh, and also um, yeah, a sort of a microcosm and and kind of a focus because of the emotions. You know, one of the things I've come to learn as uh, as chair of a national sports governing body, uh, actually, not the first black chair there was there has been another uh, black chair uh, I, I suppose I'm the first of one of the major uh, um, uh, sport national sports um, the the passion that there is in every conversation is really quite different to what you find in a in in corporate uh, life you know people really really care about their sports and you see that uh, reflected uh, often in behaviors uh, as well I think what sports can and should do is recognizing that, um, use that to take a stand and to 
to showcase and try and model as much as they can what good looks like. Because I think if we can make changes in sport, um, then that reflects across the wider society. And that's the challenge that folk like myself and others uh, have in leadership positions in sport, to be able to look at our own sports, to be able to, you know, as and when things come up, uh, to be willing and able to have very open conversations about them uh, and say, you know, this, does, this isn't in line with our values as a sport and here's what we need to do about it. Um, and then hope that we do move things forwards and in moving things forward, that reflects more broadly across society. Mm. And as you look to the future, is there a commitment you want to make about impact on race issues that you want to be held accountable for? Um, I think that in the way that I, um, I, I operate broadly across my various roles from education to business, to sport, to uh, corporate life. Um, I want to try and be a, I suppose I'm willing to be a role model that says it is possible to make a contribution uh, and to help to inform and educate uh, the people around me uh, to say, if you will open the doors to people with my sort of background and my sort of experience, then overall, the performance and experience of your organization will be better, stronger, we will be more successful as an organization, as a society, as a nation, if we are just willing to throw open the doors and open up the possibilities for folk like myself to come in and, and make a full contribution. And what that means is that I need to be willing to step up and make that contribution. You know, I could retire now, I could say, right, I've, I've done enough, you know, I've, I've made my money, I can, uh, I, I can sort of kick back a bit and, and just get on with, uh, with my life and leave everyone else to it. I think I have a responsibility to say, Actually, you know what? I, I've I've got access to those rooms. Um, I need to be in those rooms, uh, presenting a model of what you can be, what you get if you get someone like me in your room, such that organisations say, "Yeah, we want we want more. Let's get let's get more people in that can bring that to the party." Well, Sally, I think that's all we have time for today, but we could have chatted on and on. There's so much to draw out of everything you've contributed to us and to all of those who are going to listen to this podcast. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for joining me today, opening up about what is clearly a fascinating, remarkable, energizing life, great relationships, strong future aspirations. And I know this episode will stay with us for a very, very long time. So Please join us again next time on BBI's You're On Mute, where we hear from another icon, business leader, or a famous personality. Until then, please subscribe, review, leave your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a leader, would like to share your journey and opinion on social business and a fairer society, you can contact us at info at blackbritishinitiative.com. Until next time, goodbye.